Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. This morning, my responsibility is to turn your attention to the the text that, that Pastor David Lyle read at the outset of our time of worship together, and that is Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 20. We are in the middle of a series called Seven, a series that assumes that occasionally, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, no matter how sophisticated you think your faith might be, you need to go back to some of those rudimentary basics, the seven basic things that Jesus commanded of those who would presume to call themselves his followers. And we've already looked at issues like repentance. What does it look like, not just to repent initially, but to live a life that is dominated by repentance, by an about face, getting up every morning, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting on the the armor of righteousness, and we'll be talking about spiritual warfare uh, coming up this summer. We've got a whole series on that, but what does it look like in the context of repentance? We then looked at baptism and the important role that that plays in, in visually and publicly signifying your faith in Christ. And last week, we looked at the, the subject of prayer, and you can be expecting to hear more on the subject of prayer. Our entire staff just came back from New York where we were on retreat for a couple of days, learning from the people of God at the Brooklyn Tower. It is said that if you think you've got a weakness in some area, probably the best thing to do is to spend some time with people that are strong in this area. And I don't know a body of believers on planet Earth that has a better understanding for what it means to pray and what it means to invoke the power of prayer than the people in that church. And so our staff have been contemplating that and discussing that. And what is the, a way in which we can do more? We're not going to become Brooklyn Tabernacles. It's not our desire to do that, but how can we become better at this? Because without the power of prayer, we're not going anywhere. It's just not going to happen. And so you can expect to see more on that as we move ahead, particularly with the spiritual warfare series this coming summer. But today we look at another very popular passage. It's a passage that if you've been walking with Jesus for any particular period of time, you probably have heard of the Great Commission. Uh, This is, as has been rightly said, what the church should be all about. And so we're going to look today at what Jesus said about this. Uh, But then we're also going to explore some ways in which this has been misunderstood But I want to begin by just reading verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I don't know if you noticed that or not. Sometimes you get so familiar with the passage that you miss the obvious when you read it. And when we read a passage like this, particularly if we've been Christian for a long period of time and we're tempted to just sort of breeze past it, we're like, oh yeah, I know what that means. What you're going to miss is the powerful, universal, God-glorifying vision of the future. That you and I, as the church, are the avenue to its fulfillment. It is you and I who will fulfill that command, and we will do it, not alone, not standing isolated from each other, but we do it together as the body of Christ. The local church is the only way this is going to get done. 
And so Jesus gives this command to his people collectively, and he says, go and make disciples. Now, now there's an end in view for this. It's not just that we're making disciples. It's not just that we're reproducing people who follow Jesus. It is also uh, an end, the end for which God created the world, if you will, toward which this avenue of making disciples leads. And that's actually described best in the Old Testament in a passage in Isaiah 66 that says the following, I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. I want you to think about that for a minute. This directive from Jesus is not just given for our neighborhood. It's not just given for the tri-state area. Jesus is Lord of the whole earth, and he wants the world, and he's going to get the world. Amen? He's going to get it. He says, there's a time coming, and I'm going to gather every nation, every tongue. This is the great news of the gospel. There's not a language spoken on planet earth that will not also be spoken in heaven. Amen? It's just not. I've been asked before, what language do you think they'll speak in heaven? And I go, all of them? All of them. Because there's not a language down here. There's not a skin tone represented on this planet that will not be present in heaven. There's not a tribe. There's not a tongue. There's not a people group. There's not an identity that's down here that exists on this planet that will not be represented there. And the end for which God created this world, that they would come, all of those people would would bear witness to the glory of God. All of that comes by this really, really simple command that you and I have just been given. A single Greek imperative, make disciples, make disciples. So we need to know what this means. And the problem is that in our culture, we have a a tendency to dumb things down. Have you noticed that? Occasionally. Um, Sometimes it's done out of well-meaning attempts to try to just make something clear, and I get that. Uh, If you are in marketing or you do any kind of product placement or anything like that, you probably are familiar with what's called the seven-syllable rule, right? You're going to sell something to somebody. You're going to tell people uh, in a real succinct way, this is what we're all about. You got to do it in seven syllables or less. So you got to come up with a slogan. You got to come up with something that people can memorize. That's not bad. That, That can be a healthy thing until you take something that really can't be summarized in seven syllables and you try to cram it in seven, into seven syllables. And oftentimes when we talk about the Great Commission, this passage in Matthew 28, we've dumbed it down. And there are three primary ways that I've observed, probably more, but these are the three primary ways that we've kind of done it. The first is what I'll call the revivalist vision of what it means to accomplish the Great Commission. Now, Billy Graham is one of my personal ministry heroes. One of the, one of the things for which we can be truly thankful is the hundreds of millions of people that he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with. We should be eternally thankful for the legacy that he has left. We should be perpetually thankful for organizations like his Evangelistic Association that reach out to those things. But what we should not do is conflate an evangelistic association with a church. They're not the same thing. You get that? They're not. Billy Graham had a specific task. It was to spread the gospel. The church's task is not less than that, but it is far more than that. And if we truncate the vision of the church and say, well, we're just about reaching the lost, that's all we're about. Well, we certainly ought to be about that or we're not a church, but that's not the only thing we do. In fact, that's not even half of what's contained in this passage. And if we reduce it to that, what do those people do after they get saved? What happens? 
Those are the things we have to ask ourselves. If we just look at our little narrow tribe of Christianity to which covenant belongs, I can tell you what that means. It means 15 million people on church rolls of whom only 7 million bother to show up, even occasionally. It means less than 20% of those who have made some kind of decision that regularly ingest the scriptures. Only one in four who are in a home that calls itself Christian say that they pray or have significant spiritual conversations on a regular basis and practice hospitality toward their neighbors. That, you know what that means? It means that 75% possibly of the people that have made a decision might not even be Christian. Because they're not doing what Jesus has commanded them to do. And the Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. There's going to be something different about me. But if the church reduces it to let's just get people saved, well, they prayed a prayer, then our job is done. And it's not done. Not even close. And so what we have to resist is, is something that's exclusively about that revivalist sort of approach. Secondly, we have to avoid what I call the consumerist vision, where making disciples simply means, it just simply means fill the seats. Now, we are not anti-growth here. This has a couple of different extremes to it. There's an extreme that says, well, it's not about the growth. It's not about the growth. You hear people that keep saying, well, it's not about the growth. And then you wonder why they're not growing. Oh, well... They're not concentrated on that. Living things grow, don't they? Yeah. Come on, I know you're hearing me. Living things grow, do they not? Yeah, there ought to be more people filling these seats. There should be more people filling these seats. So we're headed in that direction. I'm delighted to see that. Uh, that, that's a wonderful thing. In fact, you're going to hear more about that as we continue to talk together. We're having, we'll have a mid-year meeting of the family. You should be here. I know some of you, you'd rather put a lit cigarette in your eye and come to a church business meeting. I get that, but you should be here if for no other reason than you are going to hear, number one, how God has incredibly blessed this body of believers, and number two, how we are, need, are intending to leverage that blessing to go to the next level as his people here at Covenant. What should our staff look like as a result of that? And how should it be configured? And how do we take uh, the extra dollars that are coming in that have been so generously given? God doesn't give you those extra resources for nothing, does he? He expects that something's going to be done with it. To whom much is given, much is also required. How will we leverage this for the greater glory of God and the extension of his kingdom? And you're going to see a, a long-term plan of five to seven years. You're going to see a couple of church plants involved in that. You're going to see at least two satellite locations. Because if you will look just on your way out the door today, provided that the rain has stopped, I don't want you to get to more wet than you should. But if you just look at the license plates, you'll see there's at least three different ones out there, aren't there? Three different states represented by this body of believers. Why in the world would we keep this body confined to Shepherdstown, West Virginia, when the people of covenant should be the presence of Jesus in Maryland and Northern Virginia? Why would we not do that? And so you're going to see that. You know what you got to do in order to get those things done? You have to grow. So we are not anti-growth, are we? We're not. And we're going to see some things happen by the grace of God. So what do I mean by the consumerist vision? I don't mean that we're anti-growth, but can we be honest and say, one of the things we've discovered, particularly in the Western church, is that perpetually blessing people in their spiritual immaturity is good for business. Isn't it? 
Just allowing people to live however they want, do whatever they want, never, you know, no pressure environment. Whatever it takes, just fill the seats. Just fill the seats. And then you get this nonsense like, well, God's blessing. Why? Well, look at them grow. Look at that growth. Growth can be a very good thing. So some of you, you're more negatively predisposed. You go, well, I must be compromising something. They're growing. Well, you need to grow up. But others, that's all you look at is numbers. It's growing. That's got to be spiritually healthy. Why? Because look at how it's growing. So are Mormons. So is Islam. Two fastest growing religions in North America right now, Mormonism and Islam. You think that's healthy? Yeah, just because something's growing, ask any oncologist and they will tell you growth is not necessarily an indicator of health. Sometimes it's an indicator of a terminal disease. And so what we've got to avoid in the consumerist understanding of the Great Commission is this idea that if we're filling the seats, that that's all that matters. Thomas Bergler wrote a book some years ago called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. His contention is that the whole Western church has, to a large extent, just turned the entire church into a giant youth ministry experience. Um, and I wouldn't agree with everything in the book, but I think he's got a point. Here's a quote from it. The followers of the easy life will never extend freedom in today's world. They won't even keep it for themselves. They won't. So there's the revivalist vision, the consumerist vision, and then finally there's a religionist vision where making disciples simply means fill people's heads and have them keep a lot of rules. I call these note-taking churches. Uh, they're just they're places where you just go in, you, you take a bunch of notes. What effect it has on your life is minimal, if at all, because you don't have a whole lot of people in the church that are different from you, that are rubbing up against you, that wear iron sharpening iron, and they're challenging you on a number of different fronts. It, it's just groupthink, basically. And, and at the head of it is a guy like me who's a fundamentalist pastor who's just feeding dogma to people and saying, this is, this is what you ought to do, and it's just accepted. And it conflates actual spiritual growth with the memorization of spiritual platitudes. Okay. These are the things we have to avoid. Because at the root of all of this is a reduction of what Jesus actually said. In fact, uh, as I look at my iPad here and my version of the Bible, this text starting in verse 16, the subheading actually says the Great Commission. But do you know that phrase, Great Commission, is not in the Bible? It's not there. It was coined by a missionary to China named Hudson Taylor in the early 1800s. Hudson Taylor used it in the right way. He understood what it meant. And so I think if we're going to use it, we need to understand what it means. Because over the past 300 years, in many environments that are Christian, it's become more, no more than really just a catchy slogan. And so what we're going to do today, just like we did with repentance, just like we did with prayer, just like we did with baptism, back to the text. What does the scripture say? And I think this is important. And if for no other reason, then brothers and sisters, this was the last command that Jesus gave us before he left this earth. And when he comes back, it's going to be the first thing he inspects. I think it's important we get it right, don't you? Yeah, we got to figure this out. And so what, is, what does it mean to make disciples? I want to show you four things here. Beginning with the concept of preparation for the task. Beginning in verse 16, we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I want you to notice here, there's been no commission that's been given, no task that has yet been assigned, because first, there's some preparation that's necessary, because if you want to perform adequately in something Jesus has described that you need to do, you need to prepare adequately, don't you? I mean, if, what if I wanted to be a neurosurgeon? I know that frightens some of you, probably rightly so. But if I wanted to be a brain surgeon, there's a couple of different routes that could take me. There's a couple of different ends uh, toward which my life uh, might have, uh, might move. One would be I, I, I actually do really well and I heal a lot of people, maybe even find the cure for a lot of diseases. I become very well known and quoted in all kinds of peer-reviewed articles and journals. The other route is I kill my patients and I get sued for malpractice and I develop a reputation for being a quack. You know what the difference is between those two? Often, preparation, isn't it? How many of you would like a doctor who had no medical license and never got ready for anything? With a scalpel. Not very safe, is it? Yeah, you want somebody intellectually prepared. I don't know, I mean, if I ever have to have surgery, God's blessed me with generally good health my whole life, and I've, the last time I was in the hospital was January 21st, 1972, when I was born. Uh, and I've been blessed with that, but I got to tell you, if I ever have to have surgery, there are three things I want out of that nurse or out of that doctor. Well, probably will be brain surgery for somebody like me, but there, there are three things I want out of that guy. I want intellectual preparation. I want to know he went to a medical school, an accredited one. I want to know that his transcript wasn't full of C's. You ever heard that? When you, I, I mean, I don't mean to upset any of you, but, but like 20 plus years of visiting people before they have surgery. Every single one of them has always told me before the surgery, I got one of the best doctors in the country. And I couldn't help but think to myself, never said that, would never say it to you when I'm there with you in the room, but just let you in. Every doctor can't be one of the best doctors in America. I'm glad you feel that way, but what, what happens to the guys who made D's in med school? Like that's, I want to know where they are because I want to avoid that particular hospital, right? I just, I want to do that. I want a guy who's prepared intellectually. Secondly, I want a guy who's, who's prepared experientially. He's been through a residency. You know, he's, he's prepped surgeries for another surgeon. He stood there and watched. Then he participated. Then he'd done it many, many times himself under the close supervision of another doctor. I have to tell you, I think maybe the scariest words I would ever hear as a patient, just as the anesthesiologist is putting that mask over my face, is to look up and see the surgeon with a scalpel. And the last thing I hear to be, well, this is my first rodeo. You don't want that, do you? Intellectual prep. Experiential prep. Personal personally prepared my surgery schedule for eight o'clock monday morning i don't want that guy out drinking till 2 a.m right there's got to be some preparation for this let me ask you this question how crucial is it that you and i make sure we prepare adequately for what jesus has already told us is the most important task we have we've got to prepare now, I've got good news for you. You don't have to go to medical school to do this. You don't have to go to seminary to do this. But there is one absolute non-negotiable if you're going to make disciples. And Jesus has given it to us here. If you notice again in verse 16, when they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. That preparation starts with worship. And as you look at the text, you can see this is just sort of their natural response to, to seeing him raised from the dead. The text infers that this was almost reflexive. 
And in their worship, they fell before him. This is the starting point for the original disciples that will culminate in everything we read in the book of Acts. If you're ever like me, and you've read the entire story from beginning to end, and you've wondered to yourself, how in the world did they pull that off? I mean, all of our seminaries and all of our credentials and education, all of our money and all of our facilities, all of our wealth and all of our religious freedom, we have not even begun in the West to touch what those original disciples did. We haven't even touched it. How did they do that? Moreover, they weren't all that smart. They weren't all that rich. These are people who, who didn't have a formal education. They had no airplane. They had no map. They had no real knowledge of the geography that they were being told they needed to cover outside of about a 100-mile radius of their own hometowns. But they pulled it off in 70 years. How did they do that? You get that answer right here. They worshiped him. When people fill their hearts with the presence of Jesus, something empowering happens. They get it done. They get it done. Worship is described by John Piper in this way, that it is the fuel of making disciples, and it is the goal of making disciples. So it starts as a fuel. It fills my tank with the glory and the beauty and magnificence and power and severity and love and mercy and grace and unspeakable awe of the person of Jesus. And then you know what happens? That overflows. I think the Bible says something about that, doesn't it? About the overflowing blessing of God that touches my, my neighbors, my friends, my family, the communities, and the world. It overflows until others then are captured by the glory and the beauty and the magnificence and the power and the severity and the love and the mercy and the grace and the unspeakable awe of the person of Jesus. See, there's a reason that worship is the first step in this process. It's because it's the only thing that keeps you obedient. The only thing. You will find much beauty in every person you interact with if you see first in them the image of God. You will find a capacity to love them unconditionally. But over time, that love will not last unless it's grounded in something that's greater than your love for the other person because you're occasionally going to rub somebody the wrong way. They're going to rub you the wrong way. You're going to tick them off. They're going to tick you off. The only way this mission continues is if it is fueled by an overwhelming love of the one who never broke a promise and never let anybody down. That's how it continues. This is the starting point for all of it. And it's a first step. And it involves struggle. Did you notice? It said, even in the midst of worship, some doubted. And so Jesus instills confidence in, in his original disciples by saying very simply to them, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. It belongs to me. That should put steel in the back of every person in front of me right now. To know that the same Lord that commanded you to do this is the same Lord who holds all of the authority over all of the earth and I get the opportunity now to rely completely on him. Making disciples requires that we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus has absolute, unfettered, free, and sovereign dominion over the whole earth. And then we're just, we're doing, as in doing what he has called us to do, we get to participate in that mission.
As a pastor friend of mine said once to several of us other pastors, never forget, pastor, no matter how educated you are, no matter how long you've been in ministry, Jesus is the one who is really doing the work. The rest of us are just third graders on career day, watching him do his thing and able to participate in that. But there has to be preparation. Our hearts have to be hearts dominated by worship. And then we can initiate. The initiation of the process is go therefore, or, or more accurately translated, participially, as you are going. So you don't have to necessarily get on a plane or get on a bus and go somewhere. That you have a rhythm of life, and God has put people in your path. And as you are going about that rhythm, the imperative is to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. It's the only direct command in the entire passage. Make disciples. So that starts with evangelism. And here's the thing. The meaning of the verb here reveals to us what evangelism is. Evangelism is not a sales pitch. Evangelism is not a 30 or 40 minute sermon followed by an altar call. It can include that. But that's not what it is. Evangelism is not a 10 minute soundbite conversation on an airplane or a bus or in an elevator followed by some high-pressure tactic to try to get somebody to pray a prayer. Now, it might include that. I'd certainly say if the Holy Spirit is leading you and the opportunity presents itself, but nine times out of ten, that's not how people come. It doesn't typically happen that way. Evangelism, to make a disciple, is to direct the mind and life of someone toward another other than themselves. That's what it means. You're redirecting the mind and the life of a person toward the person and the work of Jesus. Now, that by default means that your life and mine are to constantly encourage people to consider the person and the work of Jesus and redirect all of their lives toward him and encircle all of their lives around him. And then when they decide to follow Jesus, you identify them as such by baptizing them. We talked about that a, a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean? That baptism is that public profession of faith in Christ that I've been transformed. The old man is dead. There's a new person who's alive now. The old has gone. The new has come. And I've passed uh, from death unto life because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All this begins with our willingness to share our faith with others because evangelism is about reaching beyond yourself for the sake of other people who need to follow Jesus. I wonder how many people in front of me actually do that. How many people in front of me are actually seeking intentionally to turn the hearts and the minds of others away from themselves, away from whatever gods they are worshiping falsely, and toward the person and the work of Jesus. That's initiation. Now, without that, nobody comes to faith. There's a saying that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi for a couple of hundred years now. The saying is, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, Use words. How many of you have heard that? Okay. Let me give you a couple of just facts on the ground. St. Francis never said that. Okay. I, I don't know if it started as a Facebook meme. I don't, you know, at that, that statement attributed to St. Saint, Saint Francis is like that meme you've seen on social media where Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, the trouble with the internet is you never know if the sources are accurate. He never said that. 
Furthermore, St. Francis, what I know about him, would have never said that because he understands, as I do, as I'm sure and hope many of you do, that saying preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words is kind of like call somebody on the phone and if necessary use a phone. Use numbers. You can't share the gospel without words. You have to talk about Jesus. You have to do that. I did a church consult one time in a large city, and I actually had the people tell me, we don't talk about Jesus a lot here. I mean, it's a church. It's like if it were an interfaith center, I would understand that. If it were a civic community center, I, I would understand that. I, I get that. They're in a church. They're like, we don't talk about it. And I, I said, I'm sorry, would you say that again? And the leader of the committee that I was working with said, we find Jesus to be very controversial. Okay, I'll grant you, he's controversial. I get you. I get that he divides the house. I get that he makes some pretty big claims. I, yeah, you're a church. This is like saying I'm a lifeguard and I don't do water. This is what you do. All right? And so if we're not doing this, are we really a church? Thank you. No, we're not. Initiation. Preach the gospel at all times. Using the words that the Holy Spirit will give you with the confidence that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And you're going to see some people believe. And then you've got to do something else. See, the making of disciples doesn't just stop there with conversion. It continues with instruction. Jesus said in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's two sides to this. The first one is the instruction by word, right? The giving of instruction. Um, you want to avoid, again, that religionist vision of the Great Commission that says it's just about filling your head with a bunch of stuff. But you do need to know some things, do you not, about God when you're a new believer? Uh, how many of you moms, you're getting ready to celebrate Mother's Day in, in about a, a week. You, you, let me describe this scenario for you. you. You go through nine months carrying that baby in your body. You give birth to that baby. You go through the process of recovery. You, you get ready to come home. You, you fasten that baby in an appropriate highway approved car seat. You bring that baby home under the speed limit. You get that baby home. You carefully pick up that baby. I remember the first time I ever held my firstborn son and I thought, Lord, don't let me break him. Like you're really nervous, you know? You carry him up to a nursery that you've worked for months getting ready. You lay him in the bed, and then you walk away, and you don't come back for two weeks. Yeah, that's just dumb, right? You wouldn't even think of doing something like that. And most moms who are honest will tell you, if you were going to think about doing something like that, that would be the moment. Like after all that labor and trouble and everything, you haven't had sleep in 48 hours, and you're like, maybe I will just leave you here. But you wouldn't even think of that, would you? So why is it that we believe it's okay to take a newborn babe in Christ and just, just turn them loose? But it happens all the time. Where are they going to find what they need to grow? Where are they going to find what they need to be empowered? Where are they going to find what they need to, to replicate themselves and what's happened in their life, in the lives of others? Well, if you, if you adopt merely the revivalist model of evangelism, then they're going to go wherever they can find. You're just going to, yes, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. It does matter. If it's the consumerist version, well, then it's just whatever they want. 
right? Whatever makes me happy. If it's the religionist version, then it's whatever some narrow-minded fundamentalist pastor told them to think. And there's no room to process anything. If it's actually the accomplishment of the Great Commission, it's another believer in Christ exploring with them what Jesus said. And that's what God's called us to do. To make disciples. To teach them by word, but also by action. If you'll notice, he said, teach them the things that I have commanded you. Here's where it gets sticky. We have to practice what we preach. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to produce what we teach. I've learned that. I've learned that as a pastor. I've learned that as a father, as a husband. That ultimately, it is not the content of my sermons that determine what kind of disciples are produced. It is my life as well as my, as well as my doctrine that will determine what kind of disciples get produced. As an early church planting trainer told me, look in the mirror times 200. That's what's going to happen when you grow a church. So you better make sure that you're following Jesus. You got to do that. Paul told Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. So I, I just want to know whether that's happening, not only in my life, the life of our elders and our staff, but in the lives of, of everybody in front of me right now. Am I walking? What, whoever you are is going to get reproduced. You ever notice how you tend to become your own father? You tend to become your own mother? The people that influence you the most, you don't just follow their teaching. You, you turn into those people in, in a large way. And so if you're sexually immoral, you're going to reproduce people that are sexually immoral. If you're a gossip and stir dissension all the time, that's the kind of disciple that you're going to produce. Teach them the things that I have commanded you. Make sure that you yourself are obeying my commands. This is a process of teaching, instruction, and modeling, and living. Everything about me changes. Everything. My mind, my heart, my body, my money, my job, my marriage, my sex life, my approach to parenting, my attitude toward worship, everything has to now be redirected to another. There, there's, there's an initial decision where I'm going to follow Jesus, but that process of redirection takes a long, long time. And it takes people who are willing to live beside me, suffer with me, make correction when needed, have uncomfortable conversations, continue to love me through that entire process. That's what it takes. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to live side by side with people and emulate what God wants us to do and who he wants us to become so that everything about them gets redirected ultimately toward the person and the work of Jesus? That's where we're headed. Or at least it, it should be where we're headed. We have example of this in our New Testament. It's the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a group of people who came to Christ. They really had given their lives to Jesus. They are converted. They are Christian. But they don't know what life is supposed to look like. And they ask all these questions about their lives because they, they understand now my life should be different. But they don't know how. There's nobody there to show them how. And, and, and to boot, they're in the midst of one of the most pagan cities. Think about New Orleans at Mardi Gras. That's Corinth, 365 days a year. 
And these people are living in the middle of that, and they want to know, what does it look like for me to reorient my entire life around the person of Jesus Christ? And so they write a letter to the Apostle Paul that to date has been lost to history, but we know that letter existed, and the way we know it existed is because Paul wrote him an answer. It's his letter to the first Corinthians. And he said, this is how you order your sex life. This is how you handle substance issues. This is how you deal with orderly worship. This is how you relate to one another and settle disputes. These are the ways that you promote unity among yourselves. This is how you defend the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he sets the example for them in word and deed. That's what we have to do. And so is there an area of your life that is stalled and you've been unwilling to repent, and you continue and continue toward Jesus with that area of your life, because it's going to get reproduced in other people. It is. So here's how you get there. It's this last thing, emulation. Jesus said something that should give us the highest level of confidence. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Now he says something that should bring us greater comfort than anything we have ever heard. I am with you always to the end of the age. To make a disciple, you have to be one. You, you, you can't, as, as a friend of mine used to say, you can't sell what you ain't smoking. Amen? You can't. You've got to be participating in this. You have to be a disciple. And, and I want you to notice how this syncs up so well with Jesus' other, other prophetic utterance in Acts chapter 1. He said there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but if I had been standing there, I think I would have been crippled by doubt just as those early disciples were. How am I supposed to do this? I've never been more than 100 miles from my home. I can read and write. But I'm not a highly educated person. I'm going to encounter all these different cultures. How am I supposed to understand any of that? How am I supposed to cross barriers? What am I going to do when it comes to facing danger? How am I going to do that? Some doubted meant they literally were of two minds. They were divided of mind. You ever felt that way? You're unsure? You know that you know that you know what Jesus has commanded you to do, but you're just not sure if you're going to be able to pull it off. This is why the confidence goes back to Jesus. Everything goes back to Jesus. Anybody who speaks to you and says, well, just look within yourself or believe in yourself, they're not teaching Christianity. Christianity says it is not us. It is instead the one who said all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And now that same one says, I'm with you. I'm with you. What would it look like for everybody in front of me to work with that kind of power and reproduce people after you who live in that kind of power? In fact, let me just, I'm going to lower the bar a little bit. What if just a hundred people that are in front of me right now, this is, I asked this at the previous service as well, just a hundred of you said, I've got one individual on my mind right now, and I'm going to make them my one for the next year, and I'm going to pursue that one. They're not just my project, they're my friend, but inside the confines of that relationship, that's my one. And I am going to lead that person, I'm going to talk with that person, I'm going to hopefully share the gospel with that person, I'm going to see that person. I want to see that person come to know Jesus as I do, and I want to see that person walk in the power of Jesus just as I 
I do? What would it look like for a hundred of you to say, I'm going to start today walking in that power, and within the next year, someone else in my life is also going to be walking in that power, meaning that a year from now, we don't just have a hundred, we have two hundred walking in that level of power. That's the devil's worst nightmare. Can you imagine the irreversible damage that could be done to the kingdom of darkness? In addition to addiction, sexual brokenness and sin, family dysfunction, poverty, spiritual oppression. Can you imagine how much of that exists right now that wouldn't exist anymore with that many people simply being and making disciples? That is God's preferred future for you and for me. This is God's command of G- from Jesus. Make disciples. Let me ask you something else. Something you need to ask each other this week in your small groups. Is anybody currently a disciple of Jesus because of you? I I hope you bring your friends and your neighbors next week. We look forward to that. We're going to have plenty of space. We're going to have plenty of food. We're going to have plenty of everything. And we, it it is my great delight. In fact, I love that you guys do that. It shows that you trust me. And I, I hope you know, I take that seriously and I try doing my best to honor that because I know what it, I know what it's like as a younger guy who wasn't in ministry to take a friend of mine to church and just be embarrassed uh, by what took place there. And so I, I, I love you and I appreciate your trust, but here's the deal. I, I can't spiritually invest in 700 people. I can't do it. There's not a person, there's not a pastor on this planet who's capable of doing that. And if they tell you they can, you better run. You just can't do that. You just can't. It's going to be you that reaches out to those individuals. Is anybody going to be in heaven because of you? Because of your influence. See, it's not all about just getting people saved, but, but if, if we would stop for just a moment and consider the national and the global implications of what we're talking about here and the difference between whether we do it or whether we don't do it, in the next 365 days, on May the 5th, 2020, 2.4 million people living in the United States now will have died. Two and a half million. About two-thirds of them, and that's a conservative estimate, but about 1.6 million of them will go into eternity without Jesus Christ, having lived a life that was infinitely less than God intended it to be. That, by the way, is 183 people who have died in the United States since this worship service began. Another 103 added to their number for the nine o'clock service. Now let's stretch that out. Let's broaden that number to the world and it grows, it grows from 2.4 million people to 54 million people over the next 365 days. That means from the, from the moment that you came into this place until the moment you leave, 6,000 164 people will have died on planet Earth. And 5,500 of them will go into that next life apart from the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's just this service. That means between the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock, 11,000 people died around the world without Jesus.
What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we arguing about and fussing about? What do we think is a big deal that really isn't when we consider these kinds of things? And if you feel hopeless in the middle of that, how can I make a dent in that kind of number? Well, you can't. Not by yourself, but together as the church, we can. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. The tomb is empty. The power is available. And the most dangerous prayer any of you can pray right now is, God, use me. Use me. You know, I, healthy churches grow, but there's something else healthy churches do. They don't keep all those resources for themselves. They send. That's why we're talking about satellite campuses in our long-term future. It's why we're talking about church plants in our long-term future. And it's why we want to send individuals in our long-term future. I wonder how many are sitting in front of me right now that God's called you to a place. And it might be through a mission board. Perhaps you're supported financially by the church, but it might not be. I remember sitting with a, a dear friend of mine uh, some years ago. He's, he does information technology, but he's not your typical IT guy. Uh, there's probably about a dozen guys in the world that have his level of expertise and credentialing. So he could literally go anywhere in the world and we were talking, and he said, you know, God's burdened me for China. He mentioned China specifically, and, and, and we talked about it. And, and we spent about five minutes talking about what we would call a missionary assignment in China. And I looked at him, and I said, dude, you, number one, China's not going to let you in as a missionary. So if you go in, you're going to have to sneak around. And I'm not sure, frankly, that bearing false witness is an effective evangelistic strategy. I don't know. I, I struggle with that. I said, but with the skills that you have, they will invite you to come. They will ask you to come. And you can leverage the influence of the kingdom of God through that particular vocation. So some of you may go through a mission board. For some of you, the sending agency might not even be Christian. And God may be calling you to this other place and to these other people. How many people in front of me right now have been disobedient and held back from that? How many children have done it? Y'all believe I love you, right? How many children are still living in, in Jefferson County because they expressed a potential call of God to reach the nations and some selfish parent said, you're not taking my grandchildren to that place where they can catch all kinds of diseases and Lord only knows what's going to happen. You really want to stand in the way of Jesus like that? Do you? When there is a world that he has said he wants and when there's a, there are people like us, and he has said, I want them, you go get them. What are we doing? And what has God called you to do? It may not be a vocational call. You may not have to leave where you are. There are plenty of people here who need to know the love and the grace of Jesus. Are you giving it to them? Here, here's my thing. I I don't know what God's, I'm not going to presume to tell you what God is calling you to do, but I do know that he's calling everybody in front of me to make disciples. And I do know on the basis of the word of God that everybody in this room needs to say yes. Will you do that? Let's bow together. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the confidence that you give us in your authority. And I thank you for the comfort that you give us with your presence. Lord, I just pray for this entire room full of people to understand that that's enough. That empowerment can be walked in. Disciples can be made. Father, would you equip us 
equip us, empower us, encourage us, and get us to the yes so that we can experience the enormous blessings that are on the other side of that yes so that others might come to know of you, so that there will be people in heaven because of our faithfulness, that there will be people walking with Jesus who did not walk with him before because of us, because of our influence. And Father, as we continue down this road, make us faithful in that task. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.